Last week, we told you about peasants and how they were the victims of propaganda put out by the sort of people who had a vested interest in making them seem as bad as possible, and about how we tend to continue to propagate that misunderstanding when it comes to the games we play at our tables. So it should come as no surprise to you to hear that the same thing applied to almost everyone else from the medieval era, too. We pretty much always get it wrong when it comes to our little fantasy RPG worlds. And no one escapes this effect, not even those people who would seem to be above the considerations of regular, everyday society, people for whom entire swaths of history are named. Kings. Surely people with that big an impact, that large a presence must have been immune. How can we possibly say that these people were misunderstood, maligned, and misrepresented in our history books? Surely kings and queens must have been the most accurately portrayed people of anyone who ever existed. They were too well known, too important, their lives too well observed to have their reign and legacy abused by those who came after them. Our picture of them and our understanding of their place in our collective history must be above reproach because they were the most seen most observed and most studied people ever to live. Well, listen to this. But I, that am not shaped for sportive tricks, nor made to court an amorous looking glass, I that am rudely stamped and want love's majesty to strut before a wanton ambling nymph, I that am curtailed of this fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world scarce half made up, and that so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I halt by them, why I, in this weak, piping time of peace, have no delight to pass away the time, unless to see my shadow in the sun and decant on mine own deformity. Therefore, since I cannot prove a lover, to entertain these fair, well-spoken days, I am determined to prove a villain, and hate the idle pleasures of these days. Plots have I laid, inductions dangerous. Now, we're no Olivier, but hopefully you recognize that as Act 1, Scene 1 of Richard III, a play written by one of history's greatest liars about kings and other people, William Shakespeare. The very words he puts into his Richard III's mouth were there not because old Willie Shakes had any first-hand knowledge of Richard and his rule, but because he'd fallen for the same ages old propaganda put about by one man in particular, and because in Shakespeare's time it was politically prudent to toe the current party line about all that nasty business that had gone before. In fact, when we begin to dig into the life of King Richard III of England, we begin to see that not only was he not a scheming hunchback despised by the people he ruled, he was probably one of the better kings England ever had. And it just goes to show you how poorly we understand the lives of kings. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. To tell the story of Richard III, and through him understand the story of all the other monarchs of England during the Middle Ages, we're going to start with the Magna Carta first. Well, sort of. You see, the Magna Carta is often cited as the inspiring document behind both the English and American constitutions, those founding documents that outline how a country should be run, 
what rights appertain to its citizens, the responsibility of its leaders, and so forth. It provided a check on royal power and gave more rights to the citizens of England, which is all well and good. Certainly, it is an excellent reputation for a document to have. Prior to the Magna Carta, English kings and queens could do as they liked without necessarily having any regard for their subjects. When the Magna Carta came along in 1215, just 150 years or so after the Norman Conquest and William the Conqueror, it must have come as a great relief to the common man. Except, if you remember last week's episode, you'll recall that it was the Normans who were in charge at the time. Norman kings, Norman lords, dukes, and barons. And it was the barons who wrote the Magna Carta, not the peasantry, which, try as they might, were still adjusting to the whole surf thing and getting a feel for where they stood. The problem was, and you'll begin to sense a common theme here in the Middle Ages, things cost too much, and the Norman lords really hated to part with any more money than they absolutely had to. In particular, the things that were costing too much were the wars that the first King Richard, the so-called Lionhearted, and then his successor King John, the Skinny Lion, had got involved with. In order to pay for these wars, the kings raised the cost of being a feudal lord beyond the means of many lords to pay them. And this was a problem not just because of the money involved, but because of the privileges or private laws the lords enjoyed, which were granted by the king in exchange for their support. In effect, the Magna Carta was an addition to the coronation oath that told the king, hey, you have to follow these laws you said we could have in the first place. And here's what they are, just so we're all on the same parchment. Also, stop charging us so much for them. This is what it means to be king in England and how we think it should work, basically. Oh, and if you don't follow the same laws as everyone else and also reduce the cost of it for all of us, the barons, we have the right to maybe have your head cut off and have you replaced with someone who does know the proper price to charge for our privileges. And thus, the Magna Carta became an essential prototype founding document which changed the lives of the English forever. At least until it was entirely annulled by Pope Innocent III because neither side, the barons or King John, paid any attention to it at all once it had been signed. Not even a little. It wasn't just King John who was ignoring it. But thanks to the annulment, no one even had to pretend to follow it anymore. So the barons go to war and try to install Prince Louis of France, son of King Philip II, as England's new king. Which sort of almost works, and he is called King Louis of England and actually runs the place for a while. Except, they never quite managed to have him officially crowned, because in taking over most of the southern part of England, he effectively steals it from the Pope to whom King John had given the country when it became apparent problems were afoot. So the Pope excommunicates Louis, and no one can officially crown him. After John dies in 1216, the regency for his young son and successor, Henry III, is still trying to win the prophetically named First Baron's War. They bring the Magna Carta back in with fewer teeth and less objectionable bits as they try to build support. Which fails. In 1217, when the war finally ends, the Magna Carta is snuck in as part of the peace treaty. All well and good. Finally. Except, the kitty had run dry for Henry by 1225, and in exchange for being given new taxes, he brings the charter back in again. Which sort of defeats the point of the whole thing, but that's okay, because Henry's son Edward I does exactly the same thing his father did, 
more taxes in exchange for recognizing the Magna Carta. But this time, he finally makes it part of English statute law, and from then on it becomes a regular part of English politics, and every monarch since then has renewed the charter. The thing is, though, while Louis was effective King of England, he wasn't officially King of England, and this created a hole in the monarchy, and the very obvious problem that many barons had sworn oaths of fealty to him, which made it sort of awkward when Louis was thrown out in 1217 when the barons decided they didn't really like having a French king, even though they were the ones who invited him in. So a few years later, after the war, in 1220, when Henry III was officially crowned, the gap in rulership and especially the disloyalty of the barons to the proper English king had to be explained. Which they did, by painting King John as a terrible tyrant whom the barons were obliged to overthrow for the good of the kingdom. Oh, and also, King Louis who? Never heard of him. And that's what got written down in the history books, and repeated over and over through the years until everyone believed it, because no one told them any different. If we fast forward a bit, we end up in the middle of the reign of King Richard II, whom you will recall from the last episode was king at the age of 14 during the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. He first takes the throne at age 10, after his grandfather, King Edward III, son of the son of Henry III, dies. This leaves the young Richard king in name only, as a group of regents rule on his behalf until he matures. Principally, the three main regents are the Duke of Warwick, Richard, Earl of Arundel, and Thomas of Woodstock, Duke of Gloucester. Notably, Thomas of Woodstock was the king's uncle, being the son of the deceased Edward II, whose premature death had put Richard on the throne in the first place. They were later joined by Henry Bolingbroke, whose name you'll want to remember, and Thomas de Mowbray. Together they plotted to rebel and wrest control of the kingdom from Richard. Their chief complaint seemed to be that Richard II was far too chummy with people who weren't them. His first marriage, a political arrangement made by Michael de la Pole to Anne of Bohemia, ended when Anne fell victim to the plague, but left de la Pole in a position of favor which King Richard enhanced by first making him Chancellor in 1383 and then Earl of Suffolk. The reason this upset everyone so much was that Delapole was from a merchant family and not a nobleman at all. This, combined with other political appointments among people the king actually liked, and several disastrous campaigns against France and in Scotland, seemed reason enough to try to take over. In 1387 they rebelled and put to death 18 of the king's closest friends and advisors, some of whom they tortured first. Fortunately, with the help of his uncle, John of Gaunt, who returned to England in 1389 after having taken himself out of harm's way amid death threats and military failure, Richard II was able to re-establish his rule. John of Gaunt's son, by the way, was the aforementioned Henry Bolingbroke. And we leave it to you to imagine the conversation that occurred once Gaunt found out what was going on and who was responsible. Fortunately, Contrary to his portrayal in yet another of Shakespeare's plays, Richard II was merciful and spared the lives of the conspirators. Shortly thereafter, once stability at home was regained, Richard was able to secure peace with France, despite almost everyone else in the country having got so used to war that a forever war just seemed inevitable, and why not let's all enjoy it? And, just about the time everyone had started to relax and forget all about the bit where the king wasn't really in charge of his own country, Richard II had Warwick, Arundel, and Gloucester arrested and slung in jail. Arundel was tried and executed, 
Gloucester was being held in Calais, awaiting appearance before the king when he was assassinated in his cell, quite probably by at least one of the other conspirators. The Earl of Warwick found himself confined in the Tower of London, wisely confessed all and threw himself on the mercy of the king. Richard confiscated all his lands and titles and sentenced him to life in prison on the Isle of Man before he was later returned to the Tower. Henry Bolingbroke and Thomas de Mowbray, and it is de Mowbray who is under heavy suspicion of being involved in the killing of Gloucester, were both exiled after first attempting to duel each other over a disagreement about how successful they'd all been. And there the matter ended. Richard II didn't torture anyone, nor did he persecute other people who were associated with the conspirators. Or so everyone thought, until Richard's uncle, John of Gaunt, who had been instrumental in helping Richard regain power and settle down an apprehensive country, died. Richard took the opportunity to disinherit John's son, Henry Bolingbroke, a necessary step to keep him, a conspirator in treason, from succeeding Richard II to the throne, which was entirely possible because on the one hand, Richard had no children to succeed him, and on the other, both John of Gaunt and Henry Bolingbroke were from the House of Lancaster, a sufficiently royal lineage to put them next in line to the throne in an heir's absence. Satisfied that all was now in order, Richard and his various knights and soldiers went off to try to sort things out in Ireland. Which is about when, incensed at being disinherited and having all his holdings taken away, Henry Bolingbroke came back to England, easily took over the south of the country, and mustered such a significant number of soldiers and supporters that Richard, upon finally making his way back from Ireland, could only surrender and abdicate on condition that his life be spared. Thus making Henry Bolingbroke into Henry IV, King of England. Richard was imprisoned and is believed to have died in confinement of starvation. The problem was, Henry Bolingbroke was not well liked. The country was aware he had been a traitor and placed in exile. No one really celebrated his ascension to the throne, nor were they particularly happy to see him turn up on England's shores once again. In order to shore up his claim on the throne and his right to be there, Henry IV made Richard II into the figure that Shakespeare wrote about, on which much of the popular view of the king is based. Henry sent out letters demanding that every abbey and church submit their records for examination so that the entire history of Norman kings could be cleaned up and edited as needed so that Bolingbroke and his father came off the better for it and Richard looked as bad as possible. Entire pages of records kept in London were simply cut out to reflect the new reality of just how terrible Richard II was and how good it was that Henry IV came along to rescue the country. He even went so far as to force revisions in poems and books that had been out for years covering the reigns of his predecessors. The reason for all this effort to legitimize his position reflects one of the fundamental truths of the English monarchy during the Middle Ages. While the right to wear the crown might be passed down from father to son in a traditional hereditary way, it didn't mean that any one king had a right to rule just because they were related to the former king. No, in the Middle Ages in England, a monarch only ruled by the consent of those ruled. And those who consented were primarily the nobility. Remember the Magna Carta? These are things which a ruler of England should do. And these are the things that will happen if those other things aren't properly taken care of, including removing you from office, signed the barons. Of course, this also applied to a degree before the Magna Carta, 
but the Magna Carta made it all official, and by the time of Henry IV, it was part and parcel of what a king agreed to when becoming king. Which is why the War of the Roses happened. We don't want to get too bogged down in that right at the moment, so we'll give you the extremely condensed version, which is not at all entirely accurate, but does get us where we need to go. The House of Lancaster had the throne of England thanks in part to Henry IV. They tended to favor the southern and central nobles in their dealings. This left the northern nobles out in the cold, as it were, which they didn't much like. Add in all the trouble about the Hundred Years' War and paying for it, along with social unrest because, hey look, the peasants are revolting, and the fact that the later Henry VI was, at best, unfit to rule, and you get a population of lords and landowners generally displeased with almost everything. So they attempted to put someone who would support them on the throne from the House of York in the north. This didn't go over well, so Lancaster and York all agreed to have a fight. After much backing and forthing, toing and froing, the Yorkists finally win well enough for it to be an actual win, and Edward IV takes the throne. Edward looked around and decided to send his brother, another Richard, to York to begin sticking the country back together again. Richard, along with 5,000 men, take up residence in York in 1476, at which point they set about putting the place right. Not by force, mind you, but by the simple expedient of getting involved in a meaningful way in day-to-day -day life and acting as if they actually liked the place. They restore law and order, help the locals with their problems, and are generally received well and liked by the populace, who in 1482 give him a gift of several dozen fish, some bread, and 14 gallons of wine, and thanks for all he has done for them so far. Meanwhile, his brother Edward IV has been a bit busy himself. He's run off and married a woman people would really rather he hadn't, and by her has had two sons. In 1483, he names his oldest son, another Edward, age 12, as his successor. He also names his trusted, well-liked brother, Richard, as his son's protector until he reaches an age at which he is fit to rule. And then Edward IV promptly dies on April the 9th. And suddenly the race is on. The boys are staying with their mother, Elizabeth Woodville's, family when word reaches them that the king has died. They immediately load up and race to London, hoping to have young Edward crowned king before Richard, who was still in the north of England, could find out and get there first. This would have meant that they, and not Richard, would assume control of the new king, undermining the wishes of the now deceased Edward IV. Fortunately, Richard gets to them before they get to London, and takes young Edward into the city to the royal apartment in the Tower of London where future monarchs traditionally await their coronation, and schedules the event for June 22nd. Then, word reaches Richard that there is a plot against the boys, so he takes the younger brother, also named Richard, because apparently if you are a king, you only have a very short list of names to choose from, and both Edward and Richard are right at the top, and installs him in the royal apartments as well rescheduling the coronation for November once everything is hopefully calmed down again. Except, on June 22nd, out pops the mayor of London's brother, Dr. Edward, because there aren't enough Edwards in this story already, Shaw, to announce that, whoopsie, Edward IV's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville was illegal because the king had already been contracted to marry Lady Eleanor Butler when he and Elizabeth were secretly married all that time ago, which made Edward IV's children illegitimate and unable to take the throne. Well, what's a Richard to do? Here he is faced with a royal conundrum. 
no one who has been designated to do so can take the crown. With this new scandal of illegitimacy, none of the lords of the land are going to approve the succession of Edward V. It's just not proper. But wait, Richard is the king's brother. And he's popular and well-liked and good at all the admin a king would need to do. But more tellingly, England has just had the whole War of the Roses mess, and no one is prepared to go through it again just yet. Which is certainly going to happen if something isn't done right now before it all gets out of hand and all the infighting starts. So Richard steps forward and says, if no one else can do it legitimately, I guess I'll just have to do it myself. And is crowned King Richard III on July 6th, much to the relief of everyone involved. And of course, this is where all Richard's trouble starts. By 1483, no one ever hears from the young princes again. They just vanish from the scene. And then, a bunch of folks decide they don't much like Richard III, possibly fomented by the efforts of the Woodvilles, who really, really, really wanted to have little Edward V on the throne under their control. But since the various disaffected lords can't have that, they get a hold of an exiled Henry Tudor, who may in fact be the one who had the young princes done away with and say, hey, why don't you come over and... Well, it all sounds a bit familiar after that, doesn't it? By the end of it all, it really is the end of it all. The Hundred Years' War ended in 1452. In 1485, the Tudors take over, and the houses of Lancaster and York are no more, which finally puts an end to the War of the Roses in 1487 and brings an official close to the Middle Ages in England. All that remains is for Henry VII, the former Henry Tudor, to solidify his legitimacy which he does by declaring that Edward V, who was never crowned, never ruled, and never even sat on the throne, was, very briefly, actually king. And then put it about that Richard III killed he and his brother, making Richard III a regicide. And of course, since Richard was so corrupt and evil, oh, and did you know he had a horrible hunchback? It was only right that Henry should rule which Shakespeare, in 1593, was happy to spread around as part of his play, especially about all the deformities. Hunchbacks and withered arms will really draw a crowd, and since it would take until 2012 to definitively prove all of this wrong when Richard III's body turns up underneath a parking lot, for years, people went right along with it, without even wondering if any of it was actually true. Thanks for listening to this episode of GM Word of the Week. Aren't kings fun? We've had a request for some sort of merchandise people could get as a way to support the show and mark members of the tribe. Ever responsive to our fans' request, we've set up a store on TeePublic where you can get stickers, pins, magnets, shirts, and the ever-popular perennial tote bag. We'll put a link to it all in the description of the show. Both this episode and our previous one about peasants we're greatly informed by a reading of Terry Jones's Medieval Lives by Alan Herrera and Terry Jones of Monty Python fame. You can find an Amazon link to it in this episode's description as well. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can support that which you enjoy by going to our website at gmwordoftheweek.com and clicking the yellow banner at the top. There you will find both a direct donation link to our PayPal and a link to our Patreon should you like to provide ongoing support. Both of these methods are greatly appreciated and prevented you hearing about a sponsorship from one of those companies that is perfectly happy to give you a $50 discount on their product 
because it only represents less than 5% of the price. So thanks, folks. You made my day. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Bran, never crowned, often in charge, Casey. Music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Royalty was like dandelions. No matter how many heads you chopped off, the roots were still there underground, waiting to spring up again.